This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Hi and welcome to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia and I'm excited to have on uh, a friend of mine through the Titanic community that knows a lot more about anything that uh, related to the ships than I ever will. It's Evgeny Moldik, <clears throat> whose name I think I really just screwed up, even though he told me how to say it 12 seconds ago. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. How are you, Yev? I am good. Yeah, the U is silent. It's just Evgeny. Evgeny. Yevgeny. I like that name. I don't think that you is even supposed to be there. I think it was uh, when I was getting my, when I was applying, well, I wasn't the one applying. I was like nine when I was moving <laughs> to the U.S. Somebody transcribed my name into English and put a U in there. And I've been paying for it ever since. I Yeah, because I can see where I might do the, the Italian thing. You know, there's a lot of those, you know, the Italian names like Giuseppe where, mm-hmm. you know, G-U-I or G-I-U. Guido. Yeah, I kind of, I, I looked at your name in it. I will admit that I assumed that it had to at least be, like, if not outrightly pronounced, then, like, the U had to be acknowledged. <laughs> <laughs> Touched in some way. Yevgeny. All right, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, how are you, how are you doing? How goes it on this day? No, I'm good, I'm good. Like, I'm just, uh, I'm in the middle of moving, so uh, my room looks uh, really bare without all my ocean liner memorabilia that I had to pack away. Yeah. Very, very, very sympathetic gingerly. to that. Yeah, I can imagine. He's like, you know, anyone who doesn't know, you have a pretty, a pretty extensive collection of Titanic everything, really. Well, not... I not mean, everything. If, but I could, if I could afford like actual Titanic artifacts, <laughs> I'd probably be too good for everyone. <laughs> well, I, I was yeah. like, I was gonna say like a pin collection, but you don't only collect pins. You know what I mean? It's like your, no, your no, interests were vaster than that. <laughs> yeah, pins are just nice. I just I I I I promised to cut back, but then I saw <laughs> there was a pin for Empress of Ireland for sale, and you know since she sank it wasn't the cheapest pins like you know when you get paintings of dead artists yeah but i just yeah i just had to have it but though yeah i have a i have a pretty large ocean liner collection um i mean i'm not gonna like humble brag about it i it's like i'm proud of it but it's nowhere near as extensive or expensive as i've seen some other people have like um but you know like i have some stuff i'm proud of i have some I uh, have some, you know, uh, I have a Demitas from the Lusitania, or more likely Mauritania. Jury's still out on that. <sighs> a Demitas, uh, that's like a small coffee cup with a saucer. The reason it could be either only from Lusitania or Mauritania is, and I wish I could show it, but it's backed away, is because... Um, uh, it was uh, there were it was it, the design of the cup and the saucer is something that was only used on the veranda cafe for Lusitania and Mauritania. It was used it, that pattern was used around 1907, and the only Cunard ships that had a cafe like a veranda cafe were Lusitania and Mauritania. 
uh, by the time Aquitania was built, but also had like some veranda cafes. Uh, they already changed uh, what the cups look like. So it could have only come from that time period. And um, some people who, I mean, those actually do pop, those pop around like the demitas and the saucer pretty often for like, you know, rare memorabilia. So people do buy, I've seen other people have them and like they drink espresso out of it. And I'm just terrified. Like I don't use any of my like dinnerware that I got from ocean liners. Um, uh, I'm, I'm terrified to even like, approach the subject like it's i'm never going to use them for you know to drink tea out of or coffee I don't, I don't know if i would or i would like part of me likes to think that if i got something from you know an ocean liner that was of my interest that i would like half of me thinks that i would keep it in a nice case or just nicely on a shelf somewhere where i could look at it and it would be pretty and never touched and the other half of me thinks that i would have the mentality of life's too short do it anyway and i would use it <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, for example, like well, sometimes like, it, I even go like to like even if it doesn't, if it wasn't really on the ocean liner. If it's like ocean liner adjacent, I already don't want to use it. Uh, right. For example, I bought this Edwardian era Cunard uh, tea tray, like a wooden tea tray that would have been used on like Lusitania or Mauritania, but you know maybe it was from the Aquitania or some of the smaller ships. You know, like uh, you know. I don't know, Caronia, Carmania, mm-hmm. so Carpathia, probably not. Uh, so, um, and it looked kind of naked and barren just sitting on my shelf. So mm-hmm. I decided to find like a Cunard type uh, tea set. I couldn't find anything. And I got some pointers that Cunard, at the time, Cunard wasn't really like commissioning their own like China patterns, like White Star Line. So if I could find like a a, a Tuscan, uh, not from Italy, Tuscany. Tuscan was a name of a of a manufacturer of like porcelain in uh, in oh. the UK um, or England. I don't know what it was. It was in the Edwardian era. Was it Britain, England? In any case, no um, English. Let's just say English. So it was an English manufacturer, and they told me if I could find like an old. Um, an old tea set uh, from Tuscan with bi- with like big floor floor patterns. I will pretty much find like a Lusitania Lusitania tea set, and uh, yeah, I found one on Etsy that was perfect. And I put it on the tray, and uh, you know, it's never going to be like used for tea ever again. Hmm. I think that's and fair. surprise, yeah, yeah, and like surprise, surprise, it was sold by like a, it was being sold by a Russian woman. It's like a stereotype that Russian women have this obsessive fixation on uh, vintage uh, antique tea sets. I don't think it's a stereotype in the U.S., so it, it was funnier in my head. I'm sorry. It's it's a stereotype for a certain kind of like American girls. There's like this whole there's a bunch. Oh my gosh, there's a bunch of like aesthetics abound, and I think one of them like cottage core. I think it's the name. I don't know. I could be making it up, but I'm pretty sure that that's part of it. Is like vintage teacups or is it like i don't know romantic i don't know anything i mean it's all i mean it's very romanticized i mean i'm yes. I'm, I'm not the one to judge or romanticize the past as i think just about any ocean liner fan because mm-hmm. you know nihilus could probably afford to go in first class on any of those ships <laughs> no i mean i could afford to get not an interior room on a cruise ship but like 
It's yeah. uh, just find it funny, like on you know, social on social media, like people are arguing whether Titanic or the Lusitania had the nicer first class lounge. And I'm just thinking it's so hilarious because you know it's like what's the point of even arguing this if uh, chances are if you were alive at the time you would have not even come within like a a, a four deck radius <laughs> of that lounge. I think that that's actually really interesting. I mean, you know, you know, for people who don't know Yev, um, he knows so much about liners and about the time period around it. And, you know, as you know, you just mentioned with things being romanticized, you know, not to bring up the Cameron film 14 seconds into this interview, but one of the things <laughs> hit me. But one of the things that I think that was portrayed in the movie that is weirdly historically inaccurate, but yet is a, such a common trope is that, you know, class transcendence romance. And, you know, for the sake of a movie, you kind of have to suspend your disbelief of certain things, but the class barriers of the time are really hard to explain because we don't really have the same. We don't, I mean, we don't have that mentality. And you know, when you watch and it's not just the James Cameron movie, it's almost all Titanic films. They're made with like decades worth of hindsight and, you know, the writer, I mean, I'm not blaming the writer or the director because it is what it is. Yeah they're projecting their own bias, their own worldviews, which is what any director would do. So right. you can't really, I think the closest you could grasp for like a societal, like how, and like the, I mean, it's going to sound cliche that I've been, and I'm kicking myself for saying it, <laughs> but like the best movie to, uh, to portray that probably would be a night to remember. I know everybody mm-hmm. always says night to remember is the best thing and everything in it it's the best Titanic movie that was ever made and no other movies should have been made and all the other movies made before Night Remember should be burned. I'm, I'm not like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I just think since it was made so like relatively close to the sinking mm-hmm. and uh, it was such a British film. Yeah. Just please don't look at the director's filmography after like 1968 because... Excuse me, I'm just going to do that right now. Because, uh, yeah, because <laughs> after that, he was just making erotic horror films. <laughs> <laughs> Vampire Lovers, Dr. Yes. Jekyll's Sister Hyde. He sort Let's of, I don't know what happened, but his career took a nosedive. Roy Ward Baker. But we're not talking about him. We're talking about A Night to Remember how, like, there was just We might be talking about of, Roy, Roy Ward Baker. We're talking about, I, yeah. Hey, I got a lot of his movies on Blu-ray. I mean, <laughs> I, I, his movies are insane. like all the movies he made for Hammer uh, was because because uh, yeah, when we think of Hammer horror tangent time, when we think of Hammer horror films, those fifties, sixties British horror films, we think of like really classy gothic film, like films about Dracula and Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But around like nineteen seventy, they kind of went really raunchy with their films because they were trying to compete with American exploitation films. Interesting. That mm. interesting here. Because I'm I'm reading it just I brought up the wiki really quickly and it actually mentions that it says um I'm paraphrasing. He worked for TV during the 60s and 70s, directing episodes of The Avengers, The Saints, Champions, um, all of them created with an eye on the American market. Mm-hmm. That was uh <clears throat> Uh, yeah, the British film industry was sort of collapsing 
in the early 70s and they were trying to make their movies really marketable to, for, to the U.S. Because in a weird roundabout way, the reason they were collapsing to begin with is because a lot of American studios who were investing in their films, like giving them distribution deals and everything, they left. Mm-hmm. They, they left all the, all the British indie studios. So they were pretty much on their own with no money. All the money was with the American studios and they left. So they were basically showing as they were trying to bring back the American audience, like the American money by showing, see, we can make American style movies. Just please give us money. <laughs> and uh, now Americans yeah. love nothing more than British TV. Oh, yeah. It's the classiest thing that ever classed in the history of Ex- classiness. Exactly. Downton um, Abbey Downton and Abbey. everything else. That's like yeah. Downton Abbey. Yep, Bridgerton was the latest. I didn't watch Bridgerton, but people were like dying for Bridgerton. Is it even British, or is it like an American show posing as British? It's the latter of the two, but it very mm. much kept in keeping with you know that very lavish British style of TV making. It may have even be- it was a Netflix show, so Netflix shows can be you know produced and co-produced internationally. So, it- oh yeah, they got tons of international shows. Yeah, but it was definitely, I think, made mostly by Americans. But yeah, it, it had all a lot of the vestiges that were pop that are popular in um uh <clears throat> excuse me, that Americans like in British cinema. But um to go to to bring you back to a night to remember which were which is where you wanted mm. to stay. Um yes. I the reason that people bring up a night to remember so often for any of my listeners who don't know or who haven't seen it yet is that it was it is probably the most, it's not completely, it's not a documentary, but it is probably the most historically, sociologically accurate Exactly. movie. Yeah. It's, um, the, I even watch it for, um, like, not even for the historical accuracy, you know, the, the, the dubious historic, because, you know, it, it's not as historically accurate as people would like to think it is. Sorry. And I'm not just talking about the ship break, not breaking in half, because I, nobody knew, well, people knew it broke in half, but it wasn't, like, an official, official for all intents and purposes, both inquiries stated the ship sank intact. So mm-hmm. I don't really care about any mm-hmm. Titanic movie that's made pre-1985, you know, that where the ship sinks in in one piece right. it just comes with the territory but i'm just saying there are other things about that weird things in that movie that aren't accurate okay. but the socio-political type of like is i i always felt was spot on there is no like third class are not like self and not you know like most titanic films have this issue with third class being just way too self-aware how they're poor and being mistreated it's like it's almost like like the entire it feels it's like the entire third class was like radicalized by Karl Marx almost in some, in some <laughs> of the Titanic movies. And you know, just I mean, I'm sure there were some people into that on board. You know, it's like seven hundred yes. seven hundred ten about seven hundred I wanna be too pedantic because I don't even remember. There were over seven hundred passengers in third class the sure. only voyage. And I'm sure some of them were kind of into that stuff. Totally, but totally. like having all these like, you know, characters preach about, you know, how evil the rich people are and they're being and they're being oppressed. Like that's sort of just that it's just very anachronistic to assume that they that, that would have been like a theme on board. And uh for example, Julian Fellows <laughs> I think both the Julian Fellows. I know you love that one. I think both the Julian Fellows miniseries and the '96 miniseries are. I call them like peak Titanic fiction, 
because they, they embrace every single cliche, every single urban myth, and they just run with it. Like, they they revel in all like the fake the fake news as I you know the like, they just revel in all the like let's just look at Julian Fellows for a second like everybody's just so miserable on that ship I know it wasn't oh, a cruise ship I know it wasn't a cruise ship but like you know uh, but is I just refuse to believe that people just spent the entire seven day voyage well you know cut short complaining and whining and bitching about like oh my god i don't like irish people oh the poor they're the catholics rich. oh yeah yeah catholic like is that like the people really have nothing better to talk about it's like you know can you imagine if you and i let's say we'll go on a princess cruise you know oh well, no we're poor if we go on a carnival cruise no we're poor norwegian okay we're gonna go we're gonna go norwegian. all right all right so, um, and then a hundred years later, somebody makes a movie about our, about our trip mm-hmm. and the actors playing us are just sitting like drinking, I don't know, margarita instead of tea because it's a cruise. So we're just sitting there in the lounge or you know, whatever in the bar drinking. And according to the filmmaker, all we want to talk about is the upcoming 2024 election the ukraine russia conflict and how much we uh, don't like the people at the table with us yeah how much we hate the people at the table with us and um yeah that's and that's literally all we talk about like nobody's even having fun i mean like titanic once again wasn't a cruise ship but you think you know somebody would be like oh i went to the cafe parisienne and the linzer tour was amazing that's a reference to a titanic video game uh or you know like did you go to the like did you go to the turkish baths those like those electric baths are weird like that that was such a weird experience Mm -hmm. you know you'd think somebody would talk about that but no they were they're talking about i don't know the kaiser you know going into the balkans or i'm just (laughs) off the top of my head and it was interesting that you mentioned it that, um, again, and this comes with the fact that, as you were saying, these shows are made with a lot of hindsight, but the two of, two of the principal female characters in that show spend a lot of time talking about Irish politics. That was just, um, here's, yeah, that, that's actually my issue with that character of the wife of the, you know, the Lady Manton. Like, we're, yes. like we, we, we hate her like all four episodes. But then we're, we're suddenly we're supposed to like her because she goes, by the way, I knew you were cheating on me all along, but being a strong, resilient woman, I tolerated it. Yeah. Hashtag. That was like babe. such a, yeah. Like, and then like, and what's next? We're going to buy some MLM from you. Like, like, what do you want? Like, well, that was such a weird, that was so obviously written by a man because no woman will ever react like that. No, it was there was a bunch of dialogue between but her I, and the other and the the oh gosh. the the secretary's wife. Yes. They were both completely insufferable. But then in the last episode, just because like they had like a little epiphany, you were supposed to find them sympathetic. That's not how character development works. You can't just throw something at the screen like ten seconds before the climax. But what I was going to say about her, what I never understood about her character is if if she didn't want to be known being like in a was like half Irish or North Irish or whatever she was, why does she, why, then why spend the entire trip not shutting up about the Irish? 
I, I know. It's like if I didn't want anyone to know that I was half Indian, for example, it'd be my biggest secret. I'd never, I'd, like, I pretend like I didn't know what that country was. Be like, oh, oh have like you ever had an actress, Indian food? Uh, yeah, have you never had Indian food? Of, what is that? Have you ever heard of Mer Merle? I can't, I hope I'm not butchering her name. Merle Oberon. She was a Hollywood actress. No. And she was half Indian. She was half British, mm -hmm. half Indian. And being half Indian was like her dirty, dark secret. And she never even mentioned the country while she was working in Hollywood. Like it was just, it was a completely like a forbidden topic. Nobody knew that she was half Indian. So you know, it kind of drives your point home. There's a lot of, you go back to these time periods, you know, she was born in 1911. I just looked her up and mm -hmm. <clears throat> this also happened. You'll, you'll see with, you know, in, in, I'm talking only about America, but, you know, for people who ended up having mixed race children during, you know, the the time before segregation or having Definitely. children with, you know, indigenous people, if you could pass as white, a lot of people really would, because if you're able to just get away from ethnic roots in those time periods, um, your life would be a lot easier because even if you didn't look native or you didn't look black or you didn't look indian like i looked up a picture of merle and she's like you look not white but i don't know what with if you didn't tell anyone and if you were able to get away with that in those time periods there was a large percentage of people who would simply because otherwise you were literally delegated as a second class person mm. there, i mean and there's a lot of stories in hollywood that people don't really remember now but there was also yep. a universal films were grooming a new star uh, not grooming as we know now the, the the word like grooming as in they were like you know building her up to become the next star and uh, her name was Aquanetta and she was presented as this Venezuelan exotic beauty from like Latin America and she was going to the big new exotic movie star and then they discovered she was actually a woman named Mildred Davenport from like upstate New York who was black passing for white and they just demolished her they buried her career yeah. And it's, you know, we're talking about this in 2023. So of course we're talking about it with mm -hmm. light fingered disdain, like how dare we do that? But like people still unfortunately get treated like that now. I mean, in many cases, it's not quite as obvious, but I looked up Aquanet and she was from Pennsylvania. Just oh, right. this one in says Pennsylvania, area. but it also says South Carolina. So, I mean, yeah, just someone who, you know, well, wanted just her say origins Coast. unknown. Yeah. I mean, it didn't, she mm -hmm. didn't, it didn't matter, but she decided to distance herself from being Arapaho because she knew that <laughs> you can't safely be Arapaho in the forties and be successful like that, which sucks. But it was yeah, she, she was yeah, she was beautiful. I'm not going to say she was the best actress, but she never really got a chance to even like shine. She only made a couple of awful like B horror movies, like low-tier, like, universal horror movies, mm -hmm. where she played a captive ape woman. Yeah, it's I don't see ever, that. I'm not even gonna, yeah. And, um, she was actually, she, by the time they made the third movie, she was already fired, so she was in, in the last one. Um, so I don't, I can't really judge how good of an actress she was, but, uh, yeah, she, I thought, I the few movies I've seen of her, she was beautiful, I can see how she would pass for, like, South Africa, she would mm -hmm. I mean, it's still kind of creepy that she was like, kind of being fetishized, like they do with these, like, you know, dark Latin ladies. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least like, she thought it was like the lesser of two evils. But then she, somebody exposed her anyway, and her career suffered. But once again, we're. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, we're going to go back to Titanic. <laughs> Are you ready to go back to the Titanic? Are you ready to go back to Titanic? I am. You know, uh, I'll, you know I'll, the, huh? the thing with the romance in the James Cameron film about, it wasn't just the class issue, but it was impossible for it to happen. It's that they were like breaking every single American immigration um, law on, um, on, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not segregation. Um, I just had that word. Quarantine. Quarantine. Ah. Like, can you okay. remember? Can you believe I, for, I forgot that word? Like, how could anybody forget that word? It's almost uh, as though we had it tattooed on our palms over the COVID. I swear, the, the past couple of years. <laughs> the, be- the beverage bug. So, um, a third class during that time period was strictly <laughs> segregated especially when going from Europe to America, not just because it was like a class issue. The third class passengers had to be processed through Ellis Island through their quarantine check to see Ah. if any communicable diseases. It does sound very degrading, but to be fair, there were a lot of awful diseases like the, but was not, they're not, they're not preventable, but lower class, even upper classes like typhoid, the story of typhoid Mary. Mm -hmm. But that is a, um, such a gross story. I don't want to get too disgusting. much into it. Yeah, I don't want to get I, into yeah. it on this channel. But for anyone who is not familiar yet, do you want to give them like the thirty second tail end of type? Yeah, um, let's just say that that story is the reason why every time I see peach flavored ice cream, I run screaming into <gasps> the night. Yeah. Um, why okay, so Mary, uh, <laughs> basically the the colloquial slang typhoid Mary is for a person that that infects people without knowing it. And mm-hmm. there was an Irish woman in like the early, I think it was, I may be wrong. It was like 1904 or 1905. Not 100% uh, sure, but it was, it, it was like very early 19, it was already in the 1900s, but very early, like right after the end of the Victorian era. So Mary she was a Madeline young woman. was born in 1869 and she emigrated to the United States in 1884. But when uh, did the outbreak started? Because uh, it was it was so she wasn't that young. She was nineteen oh seven is when yeah. the detective started to get suspicious and started looking okay. at her. Because I saw photos of her in um, it might have been retouched, like Alice Cleaver. Uh, but uh, in but I've saw photos of her in quarantine. She looked nice for her age. I thought she was younger. But anyway, back on uh, Mary Mellon, she was a woman who worked as a cook. Um, she she was a, a really good cook. Actually, she was popular with wealthy families. She was an Irish immigrant, and um, no one knew. It was actually discovered that this can even happen with her. She was an asymptomatic carrier of uh, typhoid fever, yeah. and she was uh, she uh, suddenly like every single family she worked for as a cook would drop dead from typhoid. Yeah, like every single family, like family member, and. Like people thought, like, well, what exactly is she even cooking? Well, doesn't it only happen with raw foods? Then it turns out her big specialty was peach flavored ice cream, right. which is cold. Yes. And she was serving her, she was hired literally as a dessert chef just for her peach flavored ice cream. And the, and the detective who like exposed her, he even asked her, do you even wash your hands like before you cook? She was like, not all the time. Is mm-hmm. that necessary? Like wash your hands after the bathroom because ty- you get typhoid from you know from feces. 
fecal matter. That's what that's what makes it so disgusting, even more disgusting. And they kept arresting her, and she kept promising that she would not work as a cook. But then she couldn't find a decent job, like because nothing paid as well as being a cook for the working class. So she went back to being a cook using different aliases. So finally, it, it was a bit of a controversial court decision, but she was forcibly quarantined for the rest of her life. Yeah. And, and uh, when she, just to say, for anyone oh, who thinks that that's a a joke, Yev was serious. They basically told her, like, we will not do anything to you. You just cannot be a cook anymore. And she kept <laughs> disregarding that and in, and continuing to infect people. And that is why they ultimately put her in quarantine. And she sort of, kind of, it kind of, she kind of used that old excuse, like, "Oh, you just hate me because I'm Irish. You don't want me to like make a living because I'm Irish." And I'm like, "No, it's got nothing." I mean, there were. She did have a point. The anti-Irish yes. sentiment was horrible at the time. People don't remember, yes. but Irish people were treated like crap in the U.S. And her story didn't really help. It kind of contributed to the no. to the propaganda that Irish people are disgusting and they bring disease. So um, she so she had a point when she was saying, "You're just persecuting me." But yeah, after they forcibly circum circum, after, oh my God, I'm sorry, Freudian slip. <laughs> after they forcibly after they forcibly quarantine her, uh, she lived for like couple of more she lived until old age and when she mm-hmm. died and they autopsied her she still had live bacteria like live yes. typhoid in her in her system yes and the whole thing with typhoid mary um i'm sorry mary mallon that, that's her real name was that mm-hmm. she as you have said was asymptomatic so she never contracted ty- um, typhoid which was her whole argument was how can i be making people sick i have never been sick and I, I'm remembering now at one point in time that I believe the detective, his name is George Sober. He's the one who originally started looking into her. He was trying to get her to give him like a sample of her saliva so he could test it for typhoid and she refused. So anytime they tried to do something to confirm if she was the infected one or put some guidelines in place to stop her infecting people, she would um, she would absolutely barricade them. So when she died, they did an opso- autopsy to confirm. And it was true that she was the carrier of typhoid. <laughs> But as you said, it, it lent into anti like for her, I'm sure she felt very much like it was just persecution for being Irish. She wasn't sick. Um, and with typhoid being extremely contagious and very, has a lot of very intense symptoms, it's easy to kind of see where she's coming from. But uh, yeah, her stubbornness ultimately landed her in quarantine for the rest of her life, which is, that's a hard way to live for anyone. I think you're muted there, Yev. How's this? I'm sorry. Gotcha. <clears throat> okay. Uh, uh, so what, what, as I was saying... Um, uh, quarantining because of her, going through uh, Ellis yeah, Island. That was a need. Yes. <sighs> sorry, I'm on these tangents. So, That's what Mary Mellon was a good example. Yeah, Titanic tangents. Uh, Tangents of Titanic proportions. That's a better um, name. So the re- like the reason Mary Mallon's story is kind of a reason why they had that in, in place that third class had to be sec- strictly segregated because they had to go through a disease check at Ellis Island. And uh, let's be honest, people in first and second class paid extra not to do that. I so, was gonna, yeah, I was gonna ask why, why not? I mean, obviously, I'm sure the answer is pretty obvious in there, but like. First class, quote unquote, makes sense. They're rich. They're famous. Why would they have disease? Mm-hmm. But second class wasn't subjected to the same scrutiny. 
No, they they weren't. In fact, there were a lot of uh, people, a lot of immigrants who were like, if you can afford to go second class, do the best you can to go second class. You'll have to be like tortured through Ellis Island. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, there was even like I even I used to read like some um, from some like some te- like well like some stories about some Jewish immigrants who were like very proud how like you know my great great grandfather he brought us he brought us his family here uh, in second class now third mm-hmm. and I realized that like it's on a whole new level realize but now that I know about the quarantine and all that good stuff I mean, it makes sense so. So basically, if Jack would have really, like, no matter how rich or influential Cal and Rose were, that they demanded Jack would go to visit them in first class for dinner, that would have just been completely not allowed. That would have been illegal. That would, The ship would have been, like, banned from entering New York Harbor. Or, at best, like, the whole ship would have ended up being quarantined. And everybody, even the first class passengers, would be forced to go through that disease check at Ellis Island. And that would have been, like, the world's worst, like, advertisement for white star line what but the first process. class passengers yeah have to go through a disease check so that would rich have been people big... treated like humans <gasps> it's um yeah so uh i mean but I mean, let's be honest i'd be pissed too if i would have ordered, you know, sure yeah I'm, I'm sailing first class i'm clean as far as i know because you know i mean for not by 1912 standards let's say you know i bathe sure. twice a week i'm sorry you know, like I, I'm guaranteed not to like that. I don't need Ellis Island, and then because some like teenage girl going through an existential crisis brings her like one night stand over for dinner in my in the dining room. Now I have to pay for it, like with my like with with like nerves and delayed and like delayed time. But instead of just getting off the ship, I have to be like ushered to Ellis Island and be checked for like I don't know for for scurvy or I don't know leprosy can you imagine Uh, if we on our carnival cruise suddenly got an announcement that we all had to pass through some station in the florida keys because a girl in a balcony suite invited a boy from an interior room to dinner that would have been that see that's that's pretty much the modern equivalent it is and it's And it sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud because, you know, we can picture it. You know, there's not literal class barriers. (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm picturing it. Um, But I mean, there weren't literal class barriers on Titanic in the way that some people imagine. There weren't wrought iron gates that were fastened with a padlock to keep everybody out. Yeah, Boston gates. Yeah, but I think I I figured out where that myth came from. I think I was able to pinpoint it. Okay. And you'll be surprised by that. I mean, rumors that they were kept below existed, but there was never really like a a concrete visualization of like a Bostwick gate, like in front of a staircase leading to the boat deck. Right. That never existed until a night to remember. Oh. There was a scene in a night to remember, which I'm sure was meant to be more of like a like a, a condensed dramatic license to show like a gist of how difficult it was for most third class passengers to get up to the boat deck and to give like, to show it all in just one scene. They have some third class passengers who we were following for most of the film. They get to the second class staircase, which is already like a clue that this would could not have happened because second class staircase would not have had those gates. In one of the landings of the second class staircase, there is a Boston gate. And they have to chop down the lock. 
and oh, yeah. um and they you know they chop the law they break the law at the stair the the Bostwick gates they retract because that's what the Bostwick gates are they're like they're like they're like little accordion um mm-hmm. and Titanic didn't even have any it did have them it had them in crew only areas for like you know uh, where passengers were off limits but they never had them in passenger areas especially areas leading to the boat deck and they wouldn't have had it on the stair in the middle of a stairwell uh that's that so it's that little brief scene and i to remember did for artistic license just to bring home a point was suddenly taken for granted and going forward all titanic movies have a stupid boss gate scene in them yeah it i think it was when i was talking to um Stephen Beale, when he was pointing out that like the the gates for the most part were in people's heads. Mm-hmm. It, it was um, okay. So I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna try to whitewash anything. Um, yes, pass, some passengers uh, were kept below. The stewards didn't allow some of them to go up, but it wasn't like a malicious like you know we have to kill the poor people to make room for the rich people. It was never about that. It was all just worst possible communication skills, no organized evacuation. The the stewards in third class were literally the first, the last, sorry, the last ones to even know the ship was sinking. Like, they weren't just going to let people go up without knowing that there's an emergency. So, yeah, Yeah. early on in the sinking, early on in the sinking, they were told, uh, they were not letting people go up, but as soon as they realized the gravity of the situation, they immediately started letting people go. But then, you know, people didn't want to, there was a lot of the, a lot of, um, a lot of the third class passengers had this, I forgot what it's called. It's, it's kind of like a bystander syndrome. They, they were just waiting for orders from like higher ups. They were like, they were so used to like, 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 you know, like wealthy landowners or the government officials to tell them what to do without somebody telling them where to go and how to go. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go. They would just stand there. They just, they would just stand there waiting. I think it also other... goes to, sorry, not to interrupt, but I think it also mm-hmm. goes to the part where, you know, the, 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 we've now realized that there's different responses to like panic. It's not just fight or flight. There's also one of mm-hmm. them is also freeze. And I can imagine that that was probably a response of a lot of people. It was. And also remember, this <laughs> is all hindsight. We know now that getting in those lifeboats was safe right. and that people and that a ship was coming to rescue them. Those people didn't. Right. They didn't know that, like, because uh, as Don Lynch said it several times, uh, the common thing back then was that, you know, if a ship sinks, everybody dies. There was no, there wasn't going to, there was no, like, precedent with a big, well, except the sinking of the Republic. Uh, there was no precedent of a large rescue operation, like, uh, getting everybody off the ship. It was just kind of felt like getting into a lifeboat is just delaying the inevitable. Right. Um, well, you would get into uh, a lifeboat when you could see another ship. Typically, it was like, "Aha! Exactly. Now it's time for us to get from here to there." They were they were more of con- they were more like conveyors and less of like they were ferries. Yes, they were, they were, yeah, yeah. They they that's why you know. Oh my god, there was not enough lifeboats. But why wasn't there not enough lifeboats? Was it because they, they thought it was unsinkable and they were just dismissive of that? Uh, maybe like somewhere deep inside in their hearts, but yeah, no, not 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 really. Uh, in reality, it was seen, it was taken for granted that lifeboats were not meant to hold the entire complement of a ship, yeah, all of the people, and wait for rescue. That was just unfathomable. Yeah, the idea was that 
a rescue ship arrives and the lifeboats will start ferrying people back and forth to the rescue ship. It was um, the Republic, a much smaller, older White Star Line ship sank three years prior. It got um, it got T-boned by a small like immigrant ship. Yeesh. I forgot the name. Florida, I think. That tracks. Something, if something it's like called that. Florida. <laughs> yeah, it was an Italian. Uh, it was an Italian ship, though. It was like you know, kind of like how Germany would name their ships after American presidents, so that people would be like, "Oh, this will give us easier time to get into America." Um, I didn't know that. So, but yeah. that's great. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you, if you look at all these like American sh- uh, German ships, President Washington, uh, not oh, President George great. Washington. George Washington, Coolidge, it's, it's hilarious. So, um, uh, the, so as I was saying, uh, when the, in 1909, RMS, what was it, SS? I don't know if it had the name, probably aren't. Anyway, the Republic was T-boned by a small, like, Italian ship. And it killed, I think, like, it killed a couple of people, like, with Andrea Doria, but everybody else was rescued. It stayed afloat for, like, 12 hours. And the Baltic came, just came in time, plenty of time to get everybody off the ship. You know, didn't get squished in the T-boning. And um, it was seen so successful, you know, they used the wireless. It was the first time SOS was sent, not Titanic, it was the Republic, but still a White Star Line ship. Right. So um, after the Republic sank, it was just taken for granted that this is how every single shipwreck is going to go going forward. Nobody pictured that there would be a coal strike with so few ships around and that a giant new ocean liner will be, will be all, all on its lonesome, like in the middle of the ocean on a fairly well-traveled route that usually would have a lot of ships and that they would side swipe an ice, like a, an iceberg, which is just sedimentary rock yeah. and like, and expose half of the ship, you know, to the, to, to the ocean. That was just, completely unfathomable that this would even happen and that everybody would have to get off the ship and wait for rescue. Yeah. So yeah, it's all hindsight. Like once, once again, like it wasn't just third class passengers. Uh, many passengers just didn't think that getting into a lifeboat would have been much better option than what they had on the ship. And what's even funnier is the scene where somebody chops down a door uh, to rescue another passenger mm-hmm. or, you know, handcuffs. It's always applied to a third class passenger. Um, you know, we've seen it, we've seen that recreated in the 1943 version, 1997 version, uh, A Night to Remember. I think it's also in the Julian Fellows miniseries. It's not but, third class passengers, it is crew, but yes. Oh, right. The one that they, that the Bruce Italian just, they just casually decided to, to commit gen- mini genocide. Um, yeah. So, yeah. We don't need so, meatballs anymore. Uh, yeah. Uh, like, oh, Italian people. Yeah. They can just go to their water. But hey, David Jones Locker. <laughs> so, um, in reality, that did happen on Titanic with a first class passenger. A passenger in first class got stuck in his cabin. The door got jammed. And I think it was, once again, whoever wants to call me out and call me a fake historian, you know, for getting this wrong when mm-hmm. the first time. I think it might have been R. Nor- Norris Williams who did, who did it. Um, he heard the guy screaming in his cabin, and he grabbed an emergency like fire axe and he chopped down the door to get him out. And that's when the steward approached them and started telling them that they're going to have to pay a fine for it. 
Nice. So it's I... funny how that actually uh, that actually happened in first class, but it's always applied to third and crew in Titanic films. I know. Uh, I just now remember that it is also also again in the Julian Fellows uh, show. More like you were pointing out, except instead of a man in his own cabin, it was a the maid the mantis the maid. maid. Yes. Yes. She went back to go get something and got locked in the first class cabin, and then the footman butler male attendant showed up and like tried to break down the door and then a steward came up was like you're gonna break that and and unlocked it and her story is actually that's combined from two different situations one is that one uh that one is the arnorris williams uh fire axe story and the other one if you can google this for me yeah. there was a man traveling with his mother and sister and he had his mistress on board that he wanted to propose to and like introduce her to them after they got off in new york uh i forgot what their names were um they had like a really nice suite on b deck this wasn't the Ober. oh gertrude no, Abel no, no. thorne she was the mistress think... of george rosenshine I think that was who was with his mother and sister on board. Yes, it says. Yeah, that's them. Um, George, his mother and sister, had emigrated from Hamburg. Uh, hold on here. He boarded Titanic because his companion was his mistress. Yes, that's the guy. Yeah. Anyway, the mistress also the mistress got accidentally locked in her cabin, and she but like it wasn't like a huge deal. She started screaming, and the steward immediately let her out. That makes sense. I mean, if oh, I heard someone screaming, I'd also let them out. Uh, but um, if you ever watch this terrible, terrible, terrible documentary called Titanic, A Curiosity What Sank the Titanic and Iceberg, the end. Um, it's like this really awful, over-dramatized, sensationalized like, reenactment on the sinking. Mm-hmm. And it covers their story, you know, with like actors. And it's just completely blown out of all proportion how she's locked in her cabin and there's water flooding in and then the porthole breaks and water starts gushing in and her lover is racing against time to get her like before her stateroom floods. It was just, and then as they're running up the stairs, they get like swept up, you know, a la Jack and Rose, they get swept off by the waves. And then soaking wet, they get finally get into onto the boat deck and they can get into the last lifeboat. That is just the most biggest pile of you know, as Jack Dawson says, horse shit like ever. It also uh it, and the kind of the language that documentary uses is just so lurid and the the water begins overtaking the ship on like mm-hmm. as, as in flooding. No, it's overtaking the ship. Okay, ma'am, as you say. <laughs> ma'am, this is a Wendy's. Ma'am, this is a Wendy's. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, it was. It's a, it's terrible, but I think it's like it's the only document. It's the only Titanic like dramatization to feature that that family, uh, that couple. Yeah, and Julian Fellows kind of perverted it into his horrible, horrible, horrible miniseries. Hearing you know, those two retellings, I don't hate the fact that he combined those two stories into one plot line. I guess. No, no, you I, I no, mean, you I hated point. the show. 
Yeah, the show in general. Like, here's my biggest issue with that show is that it got so much hype. Mm-hmm. How it's going to be the most historically accurate uh, show, like dramatization of the Titanic disaster. It's going to be much more accurate than James Campbell. I mean, they never said the movie the James Cameron version out loud. If you ever watch interviews, they always kind of tap dance around it. Mm-hmm. Um, the like there was just so much hype about it being so accurate. But I think one of the issues was that ITV cut their budget. That's what I've heard. Uh, by the time like the final product came out, it was just so it was soul crushing. It looked cheap. It looked it cliche. Awful. It was a rehash like everything i think the only reason it's done in this weird you know rushamon style that doesn't really add anything you know how it always jumps back to the main voyage and then it goes back to like from another character's point of view it's so every episode it was really obnoxious i think the only reason they added that was because if it if it didn't have that format it would have been redundant it would have been just like every single other Titanic soap opera, it was. It would have just. It would. It would have been another SOS Titanic, even though like that's kind of an insult to SOS Titanic because it yeah. has some semblance of historical accuracy. It's um, you know, I'm biased, obviously. Man. Um, it's <laughs> it's um, it's it's just another '96 miniseries. I'm also pretty sure Julian Fellows watched took notes from the 96 miniseries because there's some like there's some parallels the allisons are in it the allison family mm-hmm. the dancing in first class although they're not the first or the last that was that uh, anyone who listens to me and galley talking about the 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 miniseries will hear me complain about just like there were so many things that were as you said, people lean into these certain tropes and what have you, but there were so many things that were just so outside of being accurate that it was kind of not like... like that weird, like that weird lounge writing yeah. room, smoking room, room casino room combo. Yeah. I swear it looks like it was somebody's house in, in Budapest. Like I think they just went, I mean, it did kind of look a little bit like some of the alcoves did remind me of the actual lounge. But sure. Looking closer, I think they, I mean, I could be wrong. I have been wrong about these things before, but usually not when it comes to like where things are filmed. It looks, they filmed it in Budapest you know, for, because uh, it's cheaper. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the whole thing was just filmed inside a studio, like a giant studio tank. You can tell. And- um, I there's a YouTuber that I really like called named Jamie French, and one of the things she likes to say about like low budget things is that when you can tell that it's filmed a soundstage, she calls it a seti set. Yeah. Like it's a really seti set. Oh no, it's super seti set. Yeah. Uh, and um, <laughs> what I love about their the exterior set is how everybody just gave up on it at some point while filming because if you watch it, it was supposed to be this weird, bland generic quarter of Titanic mm-hmm. of like boat deck and a deck and it was supposed to be just generic enough 
So if you add little props to it, little bits and pieces, it can change what part of the ship it's at. It could be where the it could be forward with the bridge. Right. It could be aft. Mm-hmm. It could be port side. It could be starboard side. All depends on where you like, you know, where you rearrange the little pieces. But it seems they sort of just like somewhere during like the actual production and the editing, they just like gave up trying to figure out where the hell the pass like the, the characters are supposed to be standing. Mm-hmm. So for example, um in that scene where the the daughter Manton got yes. Georgiana. Georgiana, she's flirting with a Harry Widener. Yes. That scene always gives me epilepsy with seizures. Because if you watch it carefully, you know what you know what a fashion plate is? I just learned that word actually fairly recently. I'm Googling it to um, pretend like I know what it is. Okay, you know the you know the the on the Titanic the curve, uh, the A deck where it curves like at the beginning of the deck, like it's like it's like it's open like on the Olympic, uh-huh. but then it kind of curves up and turns into the window, ah, into the windows. I see, see what I mean. Yes, I do. Yeah, on the A deck and B deck on Titanic, on Olympic it was just on B deck. So they're called fashion plates, where it kind of stylistically curves up so it looks like a smoother transition and not just like it abruptly turns into windows. So that little curve, if you watch the scene, that curve keeps switching from behind her, from behind the girl, and then behind uh behind harry widener you're real it, you're right i am now remembering even i i didn't know what it was called i didn't know it was called the fashion plate but i noticed in my brain i was just like that beam keeps moving yes that's it's so it's like they're either keep like in between dialogue they keep they starting out like they say something at the front of a deck and then they run all the way to the middle where it like, where the, where the enclosure ends and, <laughs> um, and the, where the enclosure ends and they're like, uh, in the open space where they either just keep flopping back and forth between port side and starboard side. By the way, it's stupid. Kind of like oh. if you watch Rose's, uh, on the live, I guess we should say on a living attempt. How she starts running, um, oh, how she starts, she starts running down a deck to the stern. And then uh-huh. The only way, the only way for that to work is for her to run all the way to the end of a deck, run into the, I think the yeah the port side veranda cafe, okay, through the revolving door, into the smoking room. Then run all the way back through the ship to uh, to the grand staircase. Then go up to A deck. Then not A deck, uh, all the way. So run all the way down. Uh, basically, okay, so she's on, she's in the smoking room. Then mm-hmm. she has to run all the way down A deck to the front grand staircase. Look over grand staircase. Go all the way up to the boat deck. Start running aft, hop through several like waste gates, you know, uh, partitioning the boat deck, you know, the engineer promenade, second class, get her butt over to second class promenade, go into the, go into the, uh, the second class staircase, climb the stairs or take the elevator down to B deck, 
and then she can exit onto that app B deck promenade and continue and continue to the poop deck. That was that's the only way on the ship. If you look at the blueprints, she could magically teleport from well, it's either magical teleportation from A deck to B deck, or she had to make that trip. Like she was just really she was just really confused and realized that she needs to go uh, go back to the front of the ship and then try again through both decks. So what you're telling me is that Rose Dewitt Bucator is the first Usain Bolt. Exactly. Oh, okay. We, we solved I that think, mystery. <laughs> basically, the, so basically what I'm saying is without that magical you know, Hollywood movie cut from her running yes. from A-deck to B-deck, for her to do what, for her to go from where she was on A-deck down to that B-deck, the way first class is laid out, she would have to do like an early version of parkour. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that I am sort of like, that's the sort of movie magic cinema making moment that I'm kind of okay with. No, yeah, I didn't, I never, no, I, I had, I didn't even notice that until like halfway through, through my life. Sure. I mean, well, all I was going to say was like, like to me, it's like, even though I it, like you would might know that's correct. It's one of those things where like, okay, but to make it accurate, that scene would have been like 15 minutes long and that's super boring. And then by the time she got there, she wouldn't even, she'd just be too tired. She'd be like, She's like, I don't even want to kill myself. Anymore. I'm really lost getting down here. Right. I feel like I'm just like way too tired. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now I'm ready. Try to, try to talk me into yeah. I'll just say this to you. These heels are horrible. Yeah, it, it, well, it yeah, I, wouldn't the be thing about What I always actually said about Titanic movies, and even the Night to Remember has shades of that, is every Titanic movie is essentially a really protracted episode of the of the love boat, except everybody dies in the end. So it's just morbid love boat. Yeah, it's a very morbid. And there was actually... And years later, after I made that observation, I managed to catch a sketch, like an old sketch from, you know, you remember that show Mad TV? Yeah. They had this, it's, I can't find it anymore. And if I ever find it, I would, I would have to download it. It's hilarious. It was a, they did like a, the love Titanic. They did like a, they did like a, a love boat episode set on the Titanic. And then when the ship sings, instead of the love Titanic, they're on the lifeboat. And the theme is like, the lifeboat. Oh, and that's awesome. It was, it was just meant to be a stupid like joke, a stupid parody. But they had no idea how right they were, how on, how on the nose they were by making an illusion between Titanic and the lifeboat. The, lifeboat, the love boat. Because every Titanic movie is basically an episode of the love boat. If anything, the James Cameron movie stands out in that he actually he did have multiple subplots happening around Jack and Rose. Yeah, and he had them cut. He cut them down. He cut them out and focused on just a single story. Because most other Titanic movies are basically soap operas, uh, love, uh, love, love episodes. Because there's never really one main character. It's kind of just all over the place. Hmm. If you're thinking about that. Oh, I don't know if this is it, but but I think I may have found something. Is this it? I just sent you. Is this it? The Titanic love boat, Mad TV. Is this it? 
oh my gosh yes that's it, it. Was like gone. it was gone for years Oh, it was only put up three weeks ago. So I guess maybe they finally got safe enough for it to come back. It's online. Okay. It may not be online forever, y'all, but currently right so now. Go, yeah. go Titanic, Love Boat, Mad TV, watch it. You yeah. will not. Especially if you're obsessed with Titanic movies and tropes like we are, you will not yes. regret it. Oh, I've never because seen it, but I'm going to watch it when we're done. It's just funny that like they're think they're thinking that this is like they think they're just doing this absurdist random humor that has no like no basis in reality. Right. But it totally does. I'm excited to watch it. No, I I I it is always frustrating when you're looking for a like a YouTube clip or like a clip from back in the day where you're like, I know it was online. I know it was online. And then it, it just oh, yeah. gone for There's a Pizza Hut training video I've been trying to find for over a year now. A Pizza Hut Fainting? Training, tra- tra- oh. training, training, training. Yeah. <laughs> um, Melina, back when they served beer and stuff, I guess. Oh, that is a stuff. fair point. I, I can see someone drinking a beer and eating their terrible pasta dishes and just dying on the spot. <laughs> no, it was it was hilarious. It was a training video from the eighties on how to do the how to serve drinks and, and do the salad bar because they you know back when they had like brick and mortar and mortar stores and restaurants yeah. and i just love that i mean that we're going to talk about that later but like that it was the best training video of all time That's excuse amazing. me i don't got this beer clean yes they are and i'm like oh that's like an actual industry term an Inter- actual industry there's always a weird industry yeah. <laughs> an industry term Beer uh, Yes, that's true. But um, but um, was oh, you know, the most loved boat like Titanic movie would actually have to be SOS Titanic, just in the way all of the characters and passengers are behaving is just. I know we were just discussing how they actually way too uptight. Yeah, a little. Uh, um. They act a uh, way. To- oh, it looks like you found something. I'll see if it's the same one that I, I was. Just, I, 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 all I did was Google Pizza Hut training video uh, salad. When did, it, when did it go back up? This went online six months ago. Maybe it was just like put on private. But um, anyway, who knows? But back to Titanic. Yeah, um, so it's Titanic. Uh, so I saw Titanic. It, um, I know we were just we spent like the time. Um, we just spent some time talking about how Titanic movies um, kind of make the characters too like tight, too uptight, too tightly wound. They're always like unhappy and complaining, and you know, talking about social political turmoils. Nobody's actually relaxing. Uh, in some ways, SOS Titanic is almost like an overcorrection of that. Okay. Uh, those people are just way too casual. They're just way too. There's way too much relaxing. There's way too much jovial dancing, which is like a. It's just in an old Titanic film, almost. Except yeah, James I, Cameron yeah. and uh, James Cameron and um, and I don't remember. Um, but there's all this really bizarre, like the most bizarre, one of the most bizarre things in that movie, aside from that, I call it sci-fi water, because when the ship sinks. Um, they're just kind of just spraying people down to the fire hose. I think like the water is like coming inside. Instead of you not know, like logically flooding going up, the right. water that just defies the laws of nature and just like showers them and comes in sideways. Like, like it's like almost like there's a 
a riot control like pyros. <laughs> so that's so that was a weird thing about the movie. And the other weird thing is that everybody is constantly sunbathing because they filmed the like the sailing scenes upstairs were filmed mostly on the Queen Mary, and um, they just you know Queen Mary had a lot more deck space than Titanic, so I guess they were just trying to fill out the deck space. Sure. So in many yeah. scenes, there are all these extras sitting around in deck chairs, which is hilarious because nobody told them that back then deck chairs weren't free; you had to pay for them. So there wouldn't be as many people like, uh, you know, like the deck chairs, if you had to pay for a deck chair, I think like they're on modern cruise ships, there wouldn't be half as many people trying to get a deck chair. So, um, so those deck, yeah, so they had those deck chairs. um, So there were people, all these people sunbathing, like it's a modern, like it's a carnival cruise, like it's a princess cruise. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it was just kind of like, it was just, so randomly anachronistic. I mean, they were wearing 1912 style clothing, but they were behaving like they were on a Bahamas cruise. Like there was like it, it, it was just bizarre. Kind of like if you watch the 1953 version, in the way people talk and interact. Uh, aside from Clifton Brown, because he's perfect as a snotty classmate, <laughs> yes, which is like literally yeah. his life. Um, it seems that it was written. I know, I knew, I know who wrote it. They're winning writers, but it seems their only exposure to ocean travel was like a Hawaii cruise. Yeah, that's where I get all my inspiration when I'm trying to write historical fiction. Like when I want to write about King Henry VIII, I just, I just go to a Cozumel for a while. It really inspires me. Yeah, it's just all the intrigue. No, no, but I think that was it. Was 1952 when the film was made. Sure. I guess it was more like you know you know what like it's a sh- look I sailed on a ship and this happened close enough <laughs> right uh, it just kind of feels like it's just another um, I, I guess the 1953 version and SOS Titanic they're like the only two movies the fictionalized kind where passengers aren't miserable the entire time but in the worst way possible that they turn the whole thing into a modern pleasure cruise. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to explain. It's not like they're actually saying, Oh, we're in a modern pleasure cruise. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's just the vibe it gives off. Like the way the characters interact, uh, right. the way they talk. It just feels like like it doesn't feel like, you know, like you're not on this for pleasure. This is a this is like how you get home to America. Mm-hmm. This is uh, like for example, Molly Brown is always shown to be having you know, way too much fun on the Titanic. In reality, she was kind of uh, beside herself. She was sailing back to Denver, which is where I live. Uh, she was sailing back to Denver. Uh, I mean, she was obviously going to take a train after they docked mm-hmm. in New York because her uh, her grandson was sick, and yes. uh, she was trying to get home to to like, to her grandson. So I don't think she would be as frolicky as she is in all the movies. Sure. No, Especially it's it takes a lot of um liberties with that as um a concept because yeah it's, it'd be a little hard i think in making a lot, a lot of tv and movie to explain well actually she's here but it's not for good reasons etc so it's like that's one of those things where it's like i can see where the artistic filmmaking at the time but as you and said the same it, thing with... mm-hmm. oh, no, no, go ahead sorry I'm just all, all i was gonna say was that it's just like it takes a little too long to explain stuff like that in a movie so, for example, that's why the Strausses are always like a weird, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. Yeah. Um, and um, there's, you know, I always have like a lot of uh, issues with how a lot of times Jews uh, 
historical Jews are portrayed in films, even if it's not as a villain, it's still there's always some iffy stuff going on. Yes. My issue, I mean, I am I talk with Joshua Noble about it. He's a kind of a he's a Titanic historian as well. Mm-hmm. It's sort of kind of open eyes and put it into a kind of a new context, but. I'm old, I was I'm always bothered by the portrayal of the Strausses because in most films, they're portrayed like they're fleeing Anatepka. Um, Anatepka, that's the village from Kobo on the roof. Yes. They're always uh, portrayed as this like Hasidic couple of yentas. Well, not always, just most of the time. A lot of the time. Even the, the deleted scene in the James Cameron film also played to that. They always cast like the most like, I mean, I don't know how they even cast it like Hey, those who look like super duper Jewish, like if you look like you could be like, like that you could have been a supporting cast member on the nanny, like please like come along, come to us. Uh, like they always found the most Jewish looking actors, and then they have them do these like really thick Yiddish accents when they talk. Yeah, and uh, in reality, first of all, to have the Yiddish accent, you have to be a Russian Jew, like you're from the Russian Empire. Not every single Jew from Europe spoke Yiddish. It was a Russian. It was not Russian Empire thing. Yeah, like they were German Jews. They would have had German accents, except they wouldn't have a German accent. They both immigrated to America since they were little, like since they were children, and they grew up in America. They would have not really the, the actors. The accents would have fallen away. Mm-hmm. If anything, Isidore Strauss grew up in Georgia. Fun fact: He was actually I think he was on the Confederate side during the Civil War. Uh, but then again, so was everybody else. Right. Uh, <laughs> so it's half of everyone in history. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, now we're like, oh yeah, they were the bad guys. But back then, you You would be like, yeah, let's hear it out. I mean, it's terrible what they're doing, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. One, it's like, yeah, one, one, it's like, what's that song from Evita? Like, one shifts left to right. Uh, like, something about every side. Anyway, it's like that. He was like, it was like that. But anyway. So he would have had a southern accent. He was from Georgia. At best, he would have had plus. But they were, I don't even think they would have had that. They were a pair of wealthy, assimilated, affluent New Yorkers. Yes. Assimilated, it's kind of a, it has become a sense of derogatory term. It's when a Jewish person, like, turns basically into a wasp. I, I know, um, I know what you, it's, it's the, it goes back to the whole thing we were talking about earlier about ethnic passing. It's cultural passing. Yes. Exactly. So, um, they would not have, been going like can you imagine their own Macy's they're in politics yeah um uh, can you imagine them going around Titanic like a couple of busybodies oi very oi it's just ridiculous just even it's just such a ridiculous thing to like even comprehend but then Josh explained to me that well they're supposed to be Jewish characters unless you watch the 1953 version when they're singing uh near my god to be yeah. although i guess if i was about to i probably wouldn't even care what i had to say um so they you have to telegraph that they're jewish but you can't like you know oh yes we're jewish but we're german jews so we don't really have a, a yiddish accent and we're actually not really religious but yeah we're jewish you see like that would just sound stupid so they have to telegraph them being jewish somehow and sadly they have to rely on these like borderline anti-Semitic tropes of like Jewish stereotyping to show yeah. that they're Jewish. There was actually a there was a there was a TV show from the early fifties. It's on YouTube. Uh, called, it was an anthology show 
called Telephone Time. No idea why. Don't even ask me why. I, I gave up trying to find out why it was called that. I went mm-hmm. into so many, I took so many deep dives, rabbit holes, could never figure it out. So it was an anthology show in the 50s called Telephone Time. And they usually did like, they did like biographies of like famous American folk heroes. And they mm-hmm. did an episode on Molly Brown. It was like a brief like recap of her life. Most of it took place on Titanic. Mm-hmm. And then Telephone Time, um, they, so they had Molly Brown uh, hang out with the Strausses on the Titanic. And naturally, since it's a cheap American TV show from the 50s, all of the footage of Titanic sailing and the crowd scenes and the sinking and the dining room and the water effects was naturally cut together from the 1943 Nazi version. That's like right. everything, everything you see in the, like all the 50s, 60s TV shows. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when the ship starts, so yeah, anyway, once the ship starts sinking with all the stock footage from the, from the Nazi film version, the Strausses do something that to this day I cannot comprehend why the, why the scriptwriter even thought that would be a good idea to do that. So the ship is sinking and they're going to decide to die with dignity like in real life. Mm-hmm. So they go to the Isidore and Ida Strauss, they go to their cabin where he takes out a rabbi costume because you know, that's what we Jews do. We just we stay and fly with a rabbi costume on hand in case there's an emergency. <laughs> so he's on his rabbi garb and takes out a gigantic Torah scroll, which is something we Jews also carry with us in case of an emergency. And he starts like they start like uh, reading the Kaddish or something. They start reading from the giant Torah scroll with him dressed as a rabbi. And I'm just like watching it with my jaw dropped. And I'm just like thinking, I, I don't think that ever. I don't even. I don't even think you could you could bring those horror scrolls with you outside of cinema. <laughs> but yeah, like like that that dramatization kind of went overboard. And they're trying to uh, show that they were Jewish with a white, you know, waspy 1950s American audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, that was redundant because wasp implies the Right. Um, and uh, I mean, oh, you know who played Molly Brown in that episode? It was Horace Fleischman, who, like, uh, 25 years later or so, not 20, 22 years later, she would play Molly Brown in SOS Titanic. That's there's right. just so much, there's so much overlapping with Titanic actors. Uh, it, it's actually kind of because I don't, think, I, I don't think it's just like you know, it's I wouldn't say it's eerie or ironic. It's just that. Titanic has been the Titanic story has been filmed so many times over and over and over. This type of overlapping has to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, now is nor I normally ask people to tell me their Titanic stories, but yeah, I'm planning on having you come back on the show to do the Titanic like movies and TV stuff with me. So I think I want to save that for uh, for the next time I have you on. But was there anything else you wanted to let the listeners know before your first ever appearance on the show wraps up? I guess um, if you want to hear more about my ranting about Titanic Cinema, you can always pick up either the DVD or Blu-ray. So that's Titanic. It was released by Kino Lorber. And um, 
it's the, it's uh, it contains the theatrical version, which is the shorter version. Mm-hmm. But they also managed to uh, they also managed to find the long lost uh, TV version, the one that's two and a half hours. Turns out Disney was finding it. Um, but yeah, like so. Um, if you want to hear more of, of me talk about that stuff, um, just pick up the uh, SOS Titanic Blu-ray or DVD and hit the commentary option and have fun. Yes, I highly recommend you do that, and I highly recommend that you come back when Yev's back on the talk line because he will be. Yes, I would love to come back. Thank you oh so yeah, much. that's that's a promise and a threat to anyone who's listening. He'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> it can, yeah, you can't get rid of me that easy. See, all right. Uh, well, until next time. Bye, everyone. Have a good one. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word: Titanic Talkline. T i t a n i c t a l k l i n e. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!